0: And I have this quote that I use with my clients a lot. I'll say, I can help you, or I can help you have the right problems. You tell me which road we're going down. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Leadership 480 Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms. And today's topic is huge right now because I don't think a single one of us can say we haven't struggled with this at some point and that's mental health in the workplace. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Fleming, who I'll be honest is a really big deal in the world of neural leadership. He's the founder of Grey Matters International, an international neuroleadership consulting and coaching firm. But he's also visited all corners of the world to work with dignitaries, actors, athletes, politicians and executives, ranging from Deepak Chopra to the NFL and addressing groups from the King of Jordan to the President of Mexico. So Kevin, Thank you for being on our podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Like you said, very important.
1: So let's start with the basics, though. I introduced you talking about neuroleadership. So for our audience, can you just explain a little bit about what neuroleadership is?
0: Sure. And I'll probably take a little spin on that because I do a kind of a version of it. Obviously, from what the the word sounds like, it's the application of neuroscience in a broad-based way to understanding behavioral modification and teaching and didactics around leadership topics. And so the idea is, how do we pull in some of these neuroscience experts and research to kind of get what we're missing, you know, in terms of transfer and learning and behavior and instruction? So what my company does is not only get into the uh, the neuroscience sandbox, so to speak, but I probably go down a little bit more specifically into decision making and behavior change. Um, most coaches, consultants, trainers—they're doing a lot of great work. Um, in, in terms of the the assumption that if you teach rational-based kind of stuff to people, the you know most of good-natured, you know, talented, motivated people will do it. Um, I wish that was most of the day at the office for me. <laughs> A lot of times for me, I'm brought in when that isn't working, when there's a fundamental irrationality piece. And that can be certainly in this mental health realm. It can be also just some type of uh, way people are teaching things. But I, I like to go into the application of decisional neuroscience to go into areas where we are assuming something's off that's not so easy to catch.
1: tell me a little bit about that. When you say some things off, I know you've worked a lot with executives at the top of the house, things like that, Um, and those who are kind of struggling with this on a daily basis. How do you see leaders leaders struggling with some of these uh, topics related to uh, neuroleadership?
0: Yeah, obviously one of the big areas that I would say I'm called in for is in this burnout area, right? We see a lot of burnout. But the problem is burnout doesn't, doesn't come to your... Door on your front door, knock and say, "Hi, I'm burnout, and I'm gonna mess up your life." You know, it just doesn't happen that way. It happens insidiously. It seems to happen in a slow decline uh, while we're performing, quote unquote, good enough. <laughs> and what's really odd is we're reinforced. We're getting decent reviews. We still have a desk that we sit at, so nobody's kicked us out. The world keeps turning. You know, the the world of reinforcement keeps showing you that you're a decent, good performing person. And and the way the brain works is as long it's always a you know cost-benefit ratio running all the time. It's just as long as it can run these predictive networks that seem to get some kind of output that it knows, it's gonna keep doing it. So if the world keeps saying that you're good enough, that you're okay, uh, but internally there's something else going on and crashing in your hardware, no one's gonna really know it. And what's really interesting with the mental health side is there is a aspect of sort of decompensation that we call the parasympathetic free state. It's this interesting way that I see in terms of mental health, you know, concerns kind of growing a lot with people now. It's it started, it's start a sort of a emotional shutting down of the nervous system. I'd have to say most of the stories I hear, whether you're an entry-level manager up to the C-suite, is there's some type of not only just exhaustion and an experience of like, oh my gosh, there's just a boundaryless world that we live in. My phone keeps dinging and donging and everyone's telling me they need this and that. And, and yet there's a zoom call here and zoom call there. And everyone acts as if the relationship's important, but I don't see people anymore, you know, and then I'm supposed to right. somehow do contradictions. And, and you just kind of say, excuse my French effort in some ways. And the body just says, and since you can't, cause you got to need a paycheck and you got people to support you, the body just says, Hey, I'll, I'll tell you what you, you, you keep going on the surface with your life and I'll shut down internally to re, re, you know, preserve resources and uh, we'll just hedge, hedge the fence here. And what yeah. happens is the logical consequences to that. You know, there's, there's feelings of like sort of cynicism and detachment and there's sort of like ickiness and irritability growing and this. And there's an overwhelming sense of just not feeling like you're doing your job as well as your, I was gonna say, not, just, not as well like the, the ratings are telling you, you probably are getting decent ratings and reviews, but as your heart inside thought your job and wellness and happiness would be. And so there's this learned helplessness that grows, a sense of just not feeling like you're, there's control over your world. Does that make sense?
1: It really does. And I'm curious how you define maybe the difference between burnout and um, regular stress. Cause I imagine a lot of our listeners, a lot of leaders out there are thinking like, I'm not burned out, I'm not burned out, it can't be me, but this is just regular stress I have to deal with. So how do you kind of know when you've tipped the scale towards burnout versus your regular everyday stress?
0: It's a really good question, and I'll answer it on a couple levels. First, I'll go really deep dive into the neurological or neurophysiological level. We can kind of look at the nervous system uh, in the central nervous system in terms of how it codes a fight-flight-freeze response in the limbic area and the amygdala area. And if we were running some type of EEG-based kind of system to look at um, the left side of the parasympathetic, the left side of the brain, the parasympathetic nervous system, you'll see some very, very extreme imbalances in most frequencies. This ain't stress folks. This is a locking. It's very similar to PTSD. So if you, I take a vet coming back from the Middle East conflict and I put their brain on a, on a, on a window on my computer. And I can also look at an executive or a mid-level person going through burnout. Very, very similar. It's a lock. It's a locking of neural oscillations that it's in it's literally looking like a fight between hemispheres in the electrophysiology. So that's the quick like science answer of how you can kind of see that it's not just regular stress. The other thing is, let and this is kind of the way human nature is, it's really hard to kind of get sort of a you know a warning sign early because, like I said, it's very illusory to 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 to, to discern between normal stress and burnout because. That's just, we're wired to be right as human beings. We're wired to make us feel right. That's our greatest ego addiction. So we're not gonna necessarily raise our hand in class and say, yeah, I'm a mess folks, uh, can you help me out? (laughs) And so, you know, sadly, sadly, the ones that are coming to me, whether it's the spouse or the person feeling it, they're having a decompensation. It's starting to leak. Out there's bleeding, so to speak, metaphorically, and those realms typically are in the marriage or in their relationship or their family. Their the spouse is saying they're there, but they're not there; <laughs> they're coexisting in our space, so to speak. Or uh, there's a there's an actual uh, decision making boo boo that happened where they know darn well they never would have made this error if it was normal stress, even. Um, or there's there's just a 360 or some type of evaluation process that's starting to, or accountability processes that, hey, we're worried about you. Somebody's come to them. Um, or there's self-medication stuff like drinking, uh, some other way people are just kind of checking out to kind of put the pain down. So those, but stress in general, like you alluded to, it's a good thing, right? We have a word for it, eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. That's a good form of stress. It's an arousal activity that gets you out of the bed in the morning and moving. So it's not like we're wanting complete eradication. Most human beings I'm working for want just the ability to navigate boundaries. There's a very interesting uh, book, I'm blanking on his name. I think it's Sapolsky, a neurobiologist, I think, out of Stanford. But he wrote a book called Why Zebras Get Ulcers or Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. It's a great title. <laughs> and what, what it was saying was, you know, a zebra pretty much in a savanna, is going to get eaten by a lion or he's going to live. And so this amygdala, the fight, fear, uh, freeze response turns on like a switch and runs away, or oh boy, you got eaten, shuts off, it's done. There's, a, there's an answer, <laughs> right? Okay. So there's a, an output, a delineation of an outcome. In the, human be- in the human brain, what's happened now because of the online behavior in the context of just constantly being on call in these informational contexts, what's happening is informational urgency has sort of hijacked this same circuitry that evolutionarily was supposed to be reserved for literal life and death responses. Mm-hmm. So a zebra never gets an ulcer. We do. Why? Because it doesn't shut off, right? And so that's why we see sleeping issues as one of the first signs of mental health problems. We see a lot of people just having insomnia or just having a hard time shutting off the brain, going to bed. So it's, it's sleeping. It, you know, Anytime we are feeling like we're out of control with our universe and, and living in a boundaryless universe, it's because the brain is not literally accepting you're not in a life or death situation.
1: So I'm, I'm viewing that impending deadline the same way as like a lion on the, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: directly threatening my, my happiness and, and ability to, to move forward. And I think that's really and interesting
0: how much. And, we're even, and even more so, and, and I think a lot of people going to smile when they hear this and even more so when that deadline comes to you on an email with a smiley face with, Hey, you're doing a great job and it's 11 PM at night and we care about you, it's manipulation. Right. It's there's a lot of linguistic ways of keeping you in the game. And so what happens is the the brain is very good at discerning genuineness and fairness and justice. These type of things. What ends up happening is that prefrontal cortex starts picking up the sense of disingenuousness or whether you're being used or whether you're feeling like, hey, buddy, chum, pal. Hey, I need you. Even though I know I get that, that kind of way of coming. And that I think when I hear my stories of my clients, that's what really bugs them. I think they'll deliver something 24-7 if there's a good relationship intact. There's integrity and trust intact. But when that gets abused, you start really start seeing anger and resentment.
1: Oh, that is so interesting. Um, and I'm curious. So when we think about leaders specifically and their stresses and what they bring, do you see a difference between how leaders treat these things versus versus others? Because they've got, you know, they've got the Whole responsibility of their team on their shoulders. Sometimes, if you're a higher level leader, multiple teams underneath you, do you see them dealing with this either more prevalently or differently than others?
0: That's a great question. Now you're looking at sort of a sort of a distribution of authenticity or consciousness from the top down in a company. And, yeah, I didn't
1: see quite like that, but yeah, that's what I was thinking for sure. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I mean, because it, it really, that's what this is, right? I mean, yeah, at the end yeah. of the day, everybody talks about mental health and you know, caring for your team or caring—you got to care for yourself first, right? I mean, leaders are responsible for these people, but it depends on—and this is where you're getting to the Gray Matters version of neuroleadership. I get into sort of leadership definitions where you're not just doing the right things that all the competency tests of leadership you know, assessment are telling you, but you're doing the right things for the right reasons, not the right things for the wrong reasons. See, I, di- I work with a lot of leaders who are quote unquote talented, who have, who, get, who can blow these EQ tests off the chart and all these other competency checks, but something's off because there's an inauthent- inauthenticity, there's a disassociation or disconnection to their inner world, to those behaviors. So uh, the reason why I'm getting into this is, the leaders that deal really well with this in their team, have a connection intrapersonally with the relationship of themselves. They're leading with their vulnerability. They are leading with the brokenness, not to the point where the team is saying, oh, boy, we got somebody who can't handle our team, but in this both andness. and We call it a dialectic when you can put two things opposite together, your weakness and your strength, to create an unbelievable something that people want. And that is really what I think leaders do really well with this. And I'm not saying it is endemic just to the top suite. I work with mid managers. I work to them with the mailroom guys who have the same skill. It does not matter where you are in the company. It matters whether you're living in truth, period. So how do
1: you, so that connection between you know, what people are doing on the outside and then that, that internal connection between the, you know, the motivation behind it that helps them do well, that helps them lead with a little bit of vulnerability and authenticity. Can that be developed or is that something that you tend to have or don't have?
0: Oh, that's the $100,000 question. Great, great (laughs) one. Um, Hmm. I, I think, hey, look, I, you know, I, not that many people know this or care about this, but, I, you know, as a man of faith, which I keep that out of my work unless people want to bring that in. As a man of faith, I'd say, absolutely, hope, everything's possible, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, as a scientist, I still say anything's possible, whether it's a faith or neuroscience. I see a lot of miracles happening, happening every day um, with people that have been written off that, uh, you know. So, yes, absolutely, anything is possible. Let's just put that on the table. You know, difficulty is difficult different than impossibility, <laughs> right? So uh, there are definitely people that I'll look like, you know, look at and have a bubble above my head. that go, oh boy, what the heck am I gonna do? And I have this quote that I use with my clients a lot. I'll say, I can help you, or I can help you have the right problems. You tell me which road we're going down. Because there's, there's a certain type of person that won't change because their internal alarm bells are going off, they need to have problems. And we all know this. there's some people that have to go off the cliff to learn and other people that just avoid the cliff. And I can't tell you what's in the makeup to do that. There's a you know, there's books and everybody's got different pieces of the pie of predicting human behavior. But let's face it, psychology stinks on human prediction (laughs) of this stuff. So but you know what? Yeah. To answer your question, I'd say everything is trainable. You just don't know if it's trained by the internal or trained by good old pain of the universe.
1: Mm So. As you help people, you know, as leaders come to you with these with these issues of of burnout and struggling to deal with the stress, how do you help them start to reconnect to that part of leadership? You know, find that find that joy in leadership again of, you know, and, and bring them back from the brink. Yeah.
0: And that's a great phrase, bring them back, because that's actually literally what we see in these neurophysiology scans when we work at the on the brains of these folks. And again, we're not doing lobotomies and open cutting people. <laughs> It's all non-invasive work, but there are some stunning neurotechnologies that can reset this primal internal system of circuitry around fight, flight, and freeze. And I used to be, you know, desiring of those that Dr. Fraser Crane persona where I would just walk <laughs> in and park the waters in a boardroom and say, Oh, here's what you gotta do. And everyone goes, Oh, great, Dr. Fleming. Yes. That would- <laughs> but it just doesn't happen in humanity. I mean, we hear a lot of great things. We nod our head and smile, give us a thumbs up, and we go back to doing our stupid things all over again. So what I realized was get out of the way of my ego and myself and find the best neurotechnologies that do the work from the inside out. Because until you can break that parasympathetic freeze state, that state that's keeping you sort of behind or underneath the the ice where you're smiling or above the water where you're smiling, but your body's all flailing. And I know there's Mm -hmm. people hearing this, that that's exactly the split life they're feeling with these mental health issues in business now. Until that part of the brain unifies, until the nervous system says, okay, uncle, I surrender. I don't feel in threat anymore. There's no sense in coaching a person. Now, this will be an interesting dialogue for other people to think about because a lot of people say, well, I'm a coach, I work with this and I can be able to help people. Sure. And I'm not saying you can't. Again, I'm I'm working on the tail end of the bell curve, folks. Right? So I'm working out People that already come with pre existing mental issues, mental health issues in business that are quietly dying inside, right? So maybe my sample is a little different than some of the people the executive coaches purely are working with. So I get that. But um, yeah, my experience work from the inside out. Start with neurotechnology, get the brain on fire to cool down, then start coaching them on the traits that you need.
1: Well, I think the interesting thing here is. Um you know when you're saying that so many, you know what they're showing publicly is very is very different. You know they're they're smiling on the outside. Um, you mm-hmm. know for the most part we would interpret as most of these people, especially our executives, they're incredibly successful people, or yeah. or even leaders down the road. You look at them and say, okay, they've got this um, figured out, and we have no idea what they're right. dealing with on the on the back end. Um, so I'm curious, you know, a lot of that is is related to stigma of talking about mental health in the workplace um, and their own. And you also mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, leading with authenticity and a little bit of vulnerability, not so much that you're saying, I can't handle this, but enough to let your team know you're real. Mm-hmm. How, how do you help leaders find that authenticity to and get comfortable about maybe talking about what they're dealing with to to an, a degree that's comfortable and appropriate in the workplace?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of times, unless they're in control as a CEO and are running the tone and timbre of their culture, a lot of these people need to be sold a little bit that what I'm saying makes sense. And I I, I, I love the intellectual arm wrestling that happens in the beginning where they're like, yeah, yeah, sounds great, psychobabble doc, you know, but yeah, this is what the, these are what the consequences are going to be if I do that. And I go, okay, will you sign up for an experiment and let me prove it to you? And don't take my word until you're sold. I mean, Let's face it, that's the best way to to sell a brain, you know? Uh, So what I do is I do tons of data internally on culture, team, and I give him or her the the bubble above people's heads, right? Because at the end of the day, the brain is really wired to be right, as I said. It's not wired to be effective necessarily. And so uh, what we're doing most of the time is reducing cognitive dissonance. Just a fancy phrase to say, we're going to come up with a narrative that justifies our current way of viewing people in the world while holding back the piece that needs to change inside us. And if I can come up with a a narrative that makes it look like I'm on board or that I'm buying XYZ, but then I'm self-protecting another piece, that's probably going to be the dominant narrative we're running with. So what I'm going to try to do is I've got to get to that ambivalence. And that's Interestingly enough, how Gray Matters got its name. My company got its name not only from the neuroscience illusion, but from the double entendre kind of thing here, where the name also means that gray matters in your decision-making. The grayness, uh, the ambivalence, the internal conflict actually matters, folks. You just can't tell people to get rid of it or squelch it with a bunch of coaching. You actually have to listen to the reality of that "Mm, yes, but because that's all inside of us, right? So What I do is I assume that that's there, I give the, the executive some, some data where he's like, oh, my gosh, that's never what I would have thought that what my people are really thinking about. And once he feels what? Safe, right? Emotional safety is the key here, folks. I mean, we can teach all this stuff to these leaders, but until they really believe it, you know? So I always thought it'd be fun to do these seminars where people have those little knobs like where like the Nielsen ratings would do where their people are... <laughs> their belief systems while they're t- you know, listening to these TED talks and, and these great seminars and smiles and all these PowerPoints, most of the people's knobs would be a lot of times it'd be like, mm, yeah, maybe it works for some people, but not my company or not my team. Yeah. And it's like there's a lot of that inherent in peace. And until they really feel the buy-in that it really fits for them, and you've made it through their psychological front there front door, they're not going to listen to things, even if it's better for themselves.
1: So the fear that, you know i'm gonna I'm gonna admit that I'm struggling with some of these or that I'm having a hard time. The fear is that you know, of course, at work, if your boss knows they're gonna they're gonna immediately think you're incompetent or if your team knows they're gonna think um you're not good at your job or you're not equipped to lead what what actually happens? So when you coach leaders and they go into work and they start talking about it, what do you actually see happens? Is it surprising?
0: Mm. Well, I mean, and it's it's obviously going to be varied for each type of client engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it has you have to pace obviously with the client, and sometimes you know there's two types of roads you take. One, one road is you just get things that are dysfunctional, less dysfunctional, and another road is you actually break open into a second order change space where consciousness itself changes, and they change way more than just their inner life. They change their relationships, their culture, their marriage, their health, and it just keeps growing. And it's those are just fun to watch, right? Because it's it's a it's just a a rollercoaster or a a, a a tidal wave of change. So I really don't know, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I pace and go with the readiness with my clients. And as long as they own the process where they're going, I'll, as you guys can tell already on this interview, I'll, I have a deep tool bench, you know, tool, tool deep toolkit. I can go into... As much as they want to but again a lot of times like you've alluded to there's a lot of other external factors you know there's timing there's the board there's the fact that you know sometimes if he he or she outpaces the change of the culture it could look weird too I mean so I mean it's uh, very tricky stuff and a lot of times you you have to balance your knowledge as a change agent with the reality of where they are and wh- what kinds of forces are working against that
1: I really love that concept that You know, when you start to, as a leader, um, you know, admit some vulnerability or create that culture of authenticity that um, the word you used was safety, and we talk about psychological safety in the workplace all the time as well. Um, So if you want to create that environment for others, that psychological safety, so if you're a leader, it's not just you coming forward, but also your team is probably dealing with a lot of these similar issues. how do you start to create that environment where people feel like they're safe uh, yeah. to talk about it?
0: I love that question because I talk a lot of a lot about that because you'll see all these great vignettes and you know, books about, well, you just gotta make a where failing is safe and failing's good and rewarded. And it's like I get it, but there's a lot of, mm, you know, we got You know, you can't uh, manage something you can't measure. You know, and there's all this data and analytics and empiricism and all these ways of kind of knowing how business makes its money. And there is got to be some accountability. And how do you do failing and accountability at the same time? So, I, I think it's it's a little more complex than that, right? And so, um, yeah. I mean, I I think in terms of figuring out how to get people safer, it's an individualized roadmap, right? I mean, it, but I do have a saying. You know, start with the ending in the beginning, right? try to find out where the cultural entropy is, to use Richard Barrett's words, and I love his work. Um, great thought leader on how creating values, consciousness, types of alignment kind of stuff. Um, he's got a wonderful assessment tool that I give that looks at the particular aspects of consciousness that are creating the fear-based response, and there's different ways. So I would do more of a cultural map to look at where the holes are in the cup that you're pulling water in. Because you obviously have to plug those holes in before you put the "quote unquote" healthy water in, right? So uh, otherwise, people won't believe you. They won't follow through. They won't really move to an engaging, transformational culture.
1: Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to ask them a little bit as we start to wrap up here: how how you've seen, you know, these these issues and, and the mental health issues that are um, have been happening all the time, especially as you know, over decades, the workplace has become more frenetic, more busy, um, but there's no denying we're living in a particularly special time right now where people are really overwhelmed. Um, How have you seen that change things for how people are handling mental health and how the, and the problems they're coming to you with?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. You obviously are going to see, in my opinion, what I see is two types of, of consequences. One is this, as I said, a parasympathetic free state type thing where it's this COVID world of business shutting down as we've known it it obviously has increased the sense of learned helplessness that I talked about. And so you'll see uh, the lack of control. And some people just kind of have that emotional shutdown, to use the polyvagal, term, uh, polyvagal theory term. And so you're going to see that piece that we've spent some time today talking about. But however, there's a flip side of the coin. In some ways, it takes an extraordinary event to become extraordinary in your decision making. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So there is sometimes clients like i just talked to another executive out of new york city um obviously who they, that poor city's got hammered you know and with what's going on and this person has used the life and times of this world to kind of make some courageous choices say i don't this has actually catapulted me out of you know moving coconuts around and calling it change <laughs> like <laughs> like I, i'm kind of saying mm, now I know darn well what I'm going to do with my life because this doesn't look like it's going to change. And so in some ways it's catapulted some people that had it not happened, they, they would have probably just, you know, been moving deck chairs on the Titanic and calling it Mm -hmm. change. Right. Um, You know, uh, another, another, uh, another executive that I talked to actually had um, a COVID induced coma and then died had a near death experience and came back. And of course, you know, coming back from that, it's like, all righty, I know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do with my life. And it ain't going to be what I just been doing in that office every day. So like, so, you know, there's really like, it it, it seems to breed extraordinary things out of people. And, and this nervous system response is a ner- a, an extraordinary thing. It's just, it's in the negative side, the shutting down, but also just to keep the hope alive. There's a lot of people kind of using this as a force to change things they never thought they could change before.
1: I really love that. And I think that that is the perfect way to end. You started talking about the conversation, talking about um, how we treat our worries at work, like like true, genuine fear, like on the savannah, um, right. and and ending with really our opportunity here to to move past fear, um, and and create that change so that we're we're connecting better with um, what we're really meant to do, and finding and finding that. Um, real spirit and leadership and connecting that back. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Leadership yep, 488 yeah, podcast.
0: Yeah, it's been a blast. I really appreciate it. Very, very important questions. I hope, uh, you know, people can, uh, you know, gather this wisdom, use it as they want. They can always, if they want they email in, email me anytime from my company site, graymattersintl.com and always happy to help people.
1: Sounds good. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you all for taking some of your 480 minutes today to listen to our podcast. I'm Beth Holmes reminding you to make every moment of leadership count.